There was a lot of visitors here this morning. I want to say welcome. My name is Brandon. If it's your first time here at Midtown Baptist Temple or Tyre, I want to say welcome. I'm glad that you're here. Um, hopefully, uh, people will be particularly hospitable uh, to you today considering you preached on hospitality last week. <laughs> so, just report back to me if, if people were not hospitable, okay? Uh, no, uh, just a couple things, just to recap. Uh, we've got about 71 people signed up for the spring retreat. That's, that's great. There's 120 of you, so, you know, that's like a heat. Right? Uh, so I, I wouldn't be real still yet. I mean, we, we, we're shooting for like an A, right? So as many people as could possibly be there, we want you to be there. Again, this year the retreat is going to be focused on how to study the Bible. And a lot of you guys are new uh, to the survival so even if you grow up in the church, and many of you are still very unfamiliar with principles of Bible study, and so the retreat is going to focus our attention on learning basic Bible study principles that we're going to be able to use, both in Bible study, right, small group Bible study, um, so that you can keep up, right, but also so you know how to rightly divide the word for yourself, and you can present it uh, to your lost friends and family members. So this is going to be a very good time, plus fellowship, such really good food, man kit and his team are, like I asked man kit I was like, are you ready for the food thing? Because, you know, it's college and adult ministry. You're used to people just not really being ready. <laughs> uh, I'm not really looking for the food. You're not really looking for the food. No, man kit sent me this, like, menu with, like, uh, it was just, like, so well developed, right? It's look, I mean, read like a like a menu at Capitol Grill. You know what I mean? And you have price points and all these things. And so for sixty five bucks, you're gonna get gourmet meals, right? Except for breakfast with white cereal. Right? You guys love that anyway. So you got the gourmet meal anyway. Uh, like this is a gravy. Is that right? Okay. I ain't bad. I ain't bad. <laughs> um, but the food's gonna be amazing. Uh, fellowship, time of fellowship are doing great, and so we want everyone to be there. Don't miss out. If you have questions, again, talk to my, my man Daniel right there uh, about, about even if you have needs, like maybe, maybe it's a financial need, you can work through that. Uh, the other thing I want to say is, man, thank you for your response to the ACAC thing. Uh, we're not done yet, okay? And, but, but man, thank you. So, uh, way beyond my expectations for our first offering for the HVAC, which is really encouraging to me. It shows me your heart, uh, and, uh, and so I'm really proud of you guys. Are you guys ready to study Romans? Yeah. Okay, let's, let's open up to Romans chapter 12, and let's do a, a brief review, and then I'm going to pray again. Okay, so Romans, uh, the book of Romans, right? Uh, for those of you who are just now joining us, this letter that Paul wrote to the Romans is essentially a, uh, a, an epistle that helps clarify on the terms of the gospel. All right? So in Rome, this, this huge metropolitan city, uh, hundreds of thousands of people living there, you've got brand new believers, a fledgling church just starting to grow, and there's a lot of questions about what it means to be a Christian. And so Paul is writing this letter trying to clarify what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And we've learned a lot of things uh, in, in the last year. We've been studying this, this book for a year now. And now uh, we're coming uh, just through chapter 12. And, and I think it's really important for us to, to, to specify on what chapter 12 is about. Let's begin, uh, if you're reading along uh, in verse 1. 
It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, do ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So this chapter opens up with an invitation to count yourself a living sacrifice for Jesus Christ. Now, now we, we went through this, but I, I want to remind you that, that to be a living sacrifice means that you must both be alive in your flesh, but dead to your flesh. Right? You are alive, you are a human being, you are walking around, you are breathing air, but at the same time you are dead to your flesh because you have been made alive to Jesus Christ. And this idea of living as a living sacrifice means that you are completely 100% yielded in obedience to God's word. That's what that means. And we even drew a, a very uh, simple parallel between the sacrifice of the Old Testament and what it means to let God's Word and His Spirit work in our life. So there's a direct correlation between the piercing of the sacrifice and God's Word. We're going to look at that a little bit with Wilson work, right? The idea of God's Word cutting us and dividing us flesh from spirit, right? And the Word of God does that. The same act it took place in the Old Testament sacrifice, the piercing. And then also this idea of the, the fire, right? The, the, the Holy Spirit living in us and, and, and causing us and provoking us to yield ourselves to what we know to be true in God's Word is very similar to the burning of the sacrifice in the Old Testament, right? We talked about those things. Now the thing about being a living sacrifice is it's not easy to be dead to you. That means that your desires and your ambitions and your dreams and your hopes uh, you, you have to be able to set those things aside in your ambitions to follow Jesus Christ. That's an absolute must. You cannot live a dualistic nature and be a living sacrifice. You cannot have one foot in worldly living and one foot in the church. It doesn't work that way. To be a, a, a yielded, living sacrifice means to be completely controlled by Jesus Christ in your life. And that sets the tone for the remainder of this chapter. And we studied, uh, a few weeks ago, we studied what it meant to have spiritual gifts. It means that God has bestowed upon every individual uh, specific gifts that are intended to be used. As you live as a living sacrifice, God wants to use you in a specific way within this body. But the last couple of weeks we've been focusing, focusing our attention on, on the character of a Christian. The character of a Christian. And we talked about how crucial it is to have good characters as a believer, in a world where people aren't convinced that, that Christians have good characters, with, with the church, the people that claim to know Jesus Christ, haven't actually begun by becoming a living sacrifice. They haven't done the work of being controlled by God, and so in turn, their character suffers. And as their character suffers, the testimony of the church suffers. And so the whole point of this is that we, this local congregation, the Kaya as a ministry, the MVT as a local church, would have righteous character. And righteous character produces attitudes. And so what we've been looking at specifically is what it means to have authentic Christian character that produces particular attitudes. Right? And, and I'm not going to go through this exhaustively because we don't have a whole lot of time together, a lot to say uh, today, but some. Um, so it started with our attitude of, uh, towards love, right? And, and how we understand love. And that love cannot be without dissimulation. In other words, love cannot be fake. 
Your love can't be a farce. It can't be something you put on before you come to church. It's something that has to be true of you all the time. And then we look at uh, our attitude towards good and evil. We have to abhor evil. We have to look at evil in this world as disgusting. Okay? That it can't be something that is true in our lives. Now, we talked about the balance between not being judgmental Christians in this world, but at the same time, abhorring or disdaining evil in the world, right? We talked about that balance. We talked about our attitude towards others and our affection towards the church and how we have to live towards one another and preferring one another over ourselves. We talked about uh, uh, our attitude of stewardship and how to be responsible in ministry, responsible for other people's lives, responsible for the gifting that God has given us, being responsible and not lazy in our ministry. And we talked about our attitude of faith and these, these three different characteristics uh, they exist in a faith-filled life. And if you have interest in learning more about that, please go back and listen to those messages. What we've been talking about last week, um, our attitudes in ministry specifically. And we know this uh, from the study, that each of these attitudes, they build on each other, right? You can't have these attitudes if you don't have the previous ones. Okay, there's a connection. Right? And they're interrelated. And you can't get away with focusing on ministry if you haven't first started with love. Right? And you haven't built upon uh, one upon the other. There's no way you can get to a place where you can actually be a faithful minister of the gospel. You understand? So these other things had to be true of our lives before you get to this place. But I'm, I'm really enjoying the study on ministry. Because there's a lot of you, there's a lot of you in, in this room who are ready for this conversation. You are faithful ministers. But we want to perfect the work of the ministry. And that means we have to examine our attitudes towards uh, who God has made us to be as ministers. Alright? Are you alive? Okay, I've got, I've got to talk to this. This is, this is cut number three, which is way beyond my normal minutes. So I apologize for that in advance. So my words are going to go fast. Alright? And, and also, I want to be honest with you right now. I have, in, in this PowerPoint, I think there's seven key points, which is like twice as many as what I usually have. And they're also very wordy. And I, I couldn't tear the back, so your, your fingers are going to have to work particularly fast this morning as, as we move. And again, these PowerPoints are downloadable on the website. Okay, so you can get, you can get these notes there if you, if you feel like you, you can't keep up. Last week we talked about sacrifice, and we talked about softness in our suffering. So let's look at these verses and they're going to help frame the way we the way we move forward. So let's start here. We need to be sacrificial in our attitude. So this verse says distributing to the needs of saints given to hospitality. And we talked about how hospitality means uh, that we are kind to strangers. And that, that we are prepared to put ourselves aside for the sake of other people that they might also know Christ. Now this isn't a very easy thing to do. This isn't a very easy thing to do because we are very selfish by our nature, right? And so it's very difficult for us to think in terms of putting our needs aside and put other people's needs and advance those needs, right? That, that can be very difficult. So we talk about sacrifice, so we talk about softness in suffering. Bless them which persecute you, bless them and curse not. And this idea that we need to be tender even towards those that uh, maybe our enemies, or treat us poorly, or persecute us, or maybe talk down upon us. Sometimes these are family members, sometimes these are friends, 
We have tenderness of heart that says, you know what, regardless of what you did out to me, I'm going to respond with kindness. Now today we're going to talk about what it means to be sensitive and empathetic in ministry. So let's pray. Okay, that was just with you, I'm sorry. That was just with you. Uh, so we're going to pray and we're going to ask the Lord to be with us as we study out this, this, the next couple of verses, okay? Tim, will you pray? what it means to be sensitive and empathetic, okay? Uh, which is very crucial in ministry. Okay? Uh, so let's real quick just define this word empathy. Empathy is to understand and share the emotions of others. Okay, so what we're going to talk about here at the beginning of the message is how hard this is for the world to do and how natural it should be for the Christian to do in this. Alright, that's what we're going to be talking about. How hard it is for, for worldly people to think in terms of empathy, but how natural it should be for the Christian. Uh, so what Paul is saying here is that it's necessary uh, to have a right attitude in ministry. That's what we need to be looking for. Verse 15. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that, that weep. So start first with this idea of rejoicing with those that rejoice. This is a fairly easy thing to do, isn't it? To rejoice with people when they are rejoicing, celebrating with them, when, when good things happen to them. Uh, it seems reasonable that people would love to share in other people's happiness. That, that comes easy to us. In the world, um, they even know how to rejoice with one another when they succeed. Okay? They know how to do that. They know how to celebrate in their friends' or family members' successes. It's not wholly unfamiliar to them. And, and people generally love to see others succeed, particularly those that are close to them. But in the world, listen, there's a very skewed perspective on what deserves rejoicing. And that's the major difference. See, friends in this world may rejoice over a good grade. Right? Or, or a, a good exam, or, or a, a new job, or a raise. They might know how to do that. The world may even rejoice and celebrate the sinful conquest of their friends. And I, as a man, I, I, I remember a, a time and a place where I had friends that encouraged and bolstered sinful activity in my life. Right? You, you, you know, you know your past. And you can imagine the boys, right, uh, encouraging you to live a sinful way. And these are the types of things that the world celebrates. And the question is, why? Why are they that way? See, the world finds happiness for one another in temporal things. Because the world is a temporal world to them. See, they don't see things in terms of eternity. They see things in terms of the here and now. And so we only know how to rejoice for one another in temporal things. Does that make sense? They're, they're wrapped up in the physical world. 
And so it's ruled by simple philosophy. The philosophy, the philosophy that says we only have one life to live. And so we've got to live it for ourselves, we've got to live it hard, we've got to live it now. And they celebrate and rejoice when we have success in that mindset. Does that make sense? It's a very limited type of rejoicing because it only focuses on the temple. So the world offers rejoicing that often affirms wicked thinking. Yeah? But rejoicing for the Christian is different. Rejoicing, we know how to rejoice for temple things. Okay? We know how to rejoice when someone finds success. Right? But there's a difference in the way that the Christian rejoices. The Christian can rejoice and empathize in celebration. Because they see things in terms of the value of the human soul. They think and they feel with an eternal perspective in mind. They know that every circumstance in life is either drawing people to the Lord or drawing them away. They see beyond the haze of the material and into the eternal impact of every person and every situation. Now, now listen, because, because we are Christians, we believe certain things, don't we? Right? There's certain things that we believe that the world does not hold to. So we, we believe in heaven and hell. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. We believe in the cost, the cost of Calvary, don't we? What that costs the Lord to send His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die for us, that cost. We understand those things. And it allows us to properly attribute value to both the lost and to the present. So, so bear with me for a second. First and foremost, the Christian is at an advantage in terms of empathy. Because we can think and we can feel for the greater richness of living. When we think about a person, we don't think about them in terms of the temple, we think about them in terms of the eternal. And we think in terms of everything in life, whether rejoicing or loss, has impact on, on eternity, how it affects the kingdom to come. And because of our ability to see that way, it makes our living more rich, and it makes our emotions more rich. It makes our feeling and our sensitivity and our ability to empathize with people more rich. And so here's our first key point. The Christian perspective of the human soul should result in a heightened empathy towards the emotional circumstances of all people. Michael, did you get that? Right here. <laughs> Sorry, brother. I'm giving you a hard time. As a lot, as, as, as kind of wordy. I apologize for the wordiness of that. I just didn't know how to, how to say it. So let's just walk through it real quick. What do I mean by that? The Christian perspective of the human soul. Because we believe that souls don't live just here. Because they go beyond. They either go to heaven or they go to hell. Because we believe that. Because that's the Bible teaches. Because we believe those things should result in a heightened empathy. A more rich desire for people's lives. To see forgiveness happen in their lives. We see rejoicing, we see loss in a particular way because we believe in the human soul. And it gives us the ability to look into their circumstances in a unique way. I'm going to explain that more uh, here in a second. Everybody get that? Let me give you about four more minutes. 
Let's see how this is played out as we talk about weeping for those who weep. Because obviously rejoicing for those who rejoice. That's a fairly simple thing to do. Right? For the lost world and for the brethren. It's not hard to feel those emotions with people. But this one's a little bit more difficult. So then weep with them that weep. Now weeping with people when they're sad and grieving is not something that can be manufactured. It can't just be manufactured. It can't be, it can't be faked, can it? You can't fake that kind of empathy. It has to be genuine. Now, if you know anything about weeping, by the way, I am an experiential expert <laughs> in weeping. Right, some of you know that about me. Do you know that there are three types of crying? There's three types of crying. There are, this, is like, this is like clinical. Okay? Wink with your left eye if I'm wrong at any given point. Okay? There's three types of crying. One is basal, if I'm saying that correctly. In fact, they don't really have that much research on this. Okay? They don't really understand it. The idea of crying in response to someone else's crying, but this is a phenomenon that we refer to as empathizing. And empathizing is a very complex thing neurologically, so listen to me. It's a very simple thing spiritually. It's a very simple thing spiritually. Here's our next key point. Empathy is a sacrificial commitment to prefer others over self. Empathy is a sacrificial commitment to prefer others over yourself. 
in, in order to put yourself in someone else's pain, okay, you have to first of all walk away from your own fears and insecurities. Do you hold on to? To enter into someone else's fears and insecurities and difficulties and problems, you have to be able to put your own aside, don't you? And this is why the world is really bad at it. See, the natural man has a natural fear of grief and loss. The lost world avoids pain at every cost. And this is evident in our obsession with happiness in our society, isn't it? We're obsessed with happiness. We have a happiness complex. You know, I received uh, this last week a, a survey. Sometimes as a teacher you get these surveys from students. And they're like just desperate to get an assignment that they need to do. And they need you to fill out a survey or do something. And you do it just out of obligation to that student. So I got one of these surveys this week. I think it was in relation to a psychology class or something like that. And I filled out the survey, but the survey was very revealing. Do you know how most surveys are kind of leading? Especially when high school students like it, because they don't know how to think objectively. Right? And so it was very leading. And so here are the questions. I'm going to read them to you. Here are the questions that this survey about happiness is about happiness said. Here's the first question. Are you happy? Okay. Are you happy? Do you wish you could have a do-over in life? That was the second question. <laughs> I don't even know what that meant. Do you wish you could have a do-over in life? Like if I could start over, could I be, could I be like Ryan Gosling? <laughs> I could don't. Like a do-over in life. Right? Like what, I don't even know what that meant. You wish you could, like, what kind of life could you, did you have to live in order to say you want to do over the whole life? The next question was, is happiness a choice? Is happiness a choice? Another one was, if you aren't happy with your life right now, do you believe that it will get better in the future? Are you doing something, listen, this is, this is the real question here. Are you doing something right now work, hobbies, etc. that make you happy. See, the problem with this line of questioning is that it supposes that happiness is the point of life. See, people want to make happiness, which is an emotion, the primary focus of their entire life. Can you imagine making one emotion the primary thing? Like, like, depression is an emotion, right? It's it's, It's depression is absolutely 100% a natural emotion. You should, there are times in which you should be depressed. Grieving causes depression, but if, if depression becomes, as an emotion becomes the character of your life, then you've fallen out of balance and that's a destructive way of living. How can we all see our happiness complex the same way? Our obsession with happiness, we want to be happy 24-7. And so we avoid painful emotions. That's the way the world thinks. We chase after happiness. See, this is the weakness of the lost world. They have no answer for suffering or sorrow. So they struggle to empathize for those who grieve. They fear entering into other people's grieving and loss. And when they do, listen to me, this is super important. When they do, the lost world only offers illegitimate solutions for legitimate needs. All they have is simple and worldly, illegitimate solutions for legitimate, eternal, absolute needs. 
They just don't know how to do it. So a great example for this, and a very simple one, is at a funeral. At a funeral, has anybody ever been to a funeral where someone you know who was lost, didn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, had never, there was no testimony of profession of salvation, died, and then you go to their funeral. Has anyone, anyone ever been to a funeral like that? And this is, I, I don't know, I, I've had this experience a few times now, but in a funeral like that, there's a natural distraction from the obvious question. And people dance around the issue of the eternal, and so they fixate their attention on the temple. Boy, isn't Uncle Joe's love this way, Chef? Isn't he? Man, that guy. Are we talking about Chef right now? Is that all we're doing? Man, he's a pure fish every morning. Man. Is that what we're talking about? And so what you see in a funeral like that is you see the world's inability to, to enter into empathy at a level that's meaningful at all. Their only desire is to distract and bring back that happiness that they so long for. You know, I have a friend named John Timber. And he is a Christian and he's a counselor. Uh, he goes to church here. Some of you guys know John. You guys know John? Yeah. So I was talking to him about this issue. And I got a quote from him. I'll put it up there. That's the next slide I think. Oh, this is it. Say it, yeah. <laughs> I didn't see his name before. It's tucked in there. Um, so he says, if, if there's any insecurity, fear, or uncertainty in a person, it prohibits you from fully setting aside your concerns to enter into other people. And I thought that was so good. It is so true, because the Christian is at a great advantage in times of loss for two reasons. For two reasons. The first reason is key point number three. Okay? Key point number three. Sorrow and suffering are familiar friends to those who know Christ. To others, grief poses no personal threat. Okay, what do you mean by that? I, I mean, if you are a Christian, there's a few things that are promised to you. Like if you call yourself by the name of Christian, and if you're living a life devoted to following Jesus Christ, there's a, a few attributes that are absolutely true about who you are, and one of which is that you're going to absolutely face suffering. And in fact, I, I, I dare to say, based on what Scripture says, that if you are suffering, occasionally at some level, then you're probably failing to actually live as a Christian. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. So for godly sorrow it worketh repentance. In other words, God invites sorrow, listen, God invites sorrow into our life to lead us to a place of conviction and repentance. Isn't that amazing? And that points out in the second part of the verse, it says, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. This verse has made my last point. So the world doesn't know what to do with sorrow, but sorrow for the Christian, it guides them and leads them into deeper relationship and fellowship with Jesus Christ, doesn't it? And many of you know that. Because there have been times in your life where sorrow did not lead you to Jesus Christ. It led you in the other direction. It led you to a lifestyle of depression and darkness. 
But you also know that as you've learned to submit your sorrow to God, you've seen Him walk through that. Look at 2 Timothy 3.12. It says, Yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's a promise, isn't it? And all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall, shall suffer persecution. 1 Peter 4.16 says, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed of that, but let him glorify God on this behalf. So this is what I mean by sorrow and suffering being a close friend of the believer. It's not an enemy to the believer as it is to the world. It's a friend that guides us and draws us to know Christ more intimately. And so because of that, because we are okay and content in our suffering as we should be, then we have the ability to enter into other people's grieving and meet them where they're at in a way that's supernatural. And you can offer your emotions and your feelings to them as a guide to righteousness. Are you with me? Like this just felt, maybe this is just so obvious to you that it doesn't need to be said. But I don't think this is obvious to, to a lot of people. Because a lot of us listen to me, and, and excuse me, this is a little bit bold, but many of you have many reasons to not cry with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Many of you have many excuses for why you can't hurt with other people. And a lot of us, a lot of us live just like the world where we're avoiding pain. We're avoiding it, and so we don't know how to enter into the sorrows and the suffering of other people. We don't know how to meet them in that place. The Christians should be at a great advantage, but oftentimes they're not. Another way that we're at a, a, a key advantage in terms of empathizing is this next key point, key point number four. Eternal hope, eternal hope is the anchor that helps Christians to wait out into other people's emotional storms. Eternal hope. What do I mean by eternal hope? I mean the promise of eternity. I mean knowing that your salvation is sure. Knowing that Jesus Christ bled and died for you and rose again, your sins might be forgiven. <laughs> and because you put your faith in that fact, that from now into eternity, you're sealed and saved and no matter what comes your way, your salvation is true, and you don't have to be afraid. It's not the way the world is afraid. And so what I mean is, eternal hope is absolutely the thing that grounds you so you don't have to be afraid to go out and meet people where they're at in their emotional storms. First Peter chapter 3, verse 13 says, And who is he that will harm you? Who can harm you? If you be followers of that which is good, but, and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. So listen to this. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So you don't have to be afraid of terror or trouble or suffering or sorrow. You have to be afraid of all those things because there's surety in your heart. There's a hope that exists in you that is the answer for the lost world's problems. Do 
It is your anchor. So there really isn't anything that you should be afraid of. Let alone other people's emotional problems. You know, um, this, is, this is hard for a lot of you. And the reason I think this message is super important is especially important for leaders. Because I think, if, if anybody knows this, I'm, I'm going to make an observation, and maybe I'm, I'm wrong. But who's small group is like just, just the family? Who believes that their small group is absolutely their family? And those people are there for you no matter what. I mean, even more so than the entire at large. The, the people in your small group are going to go out on a limb for you. Now, if we, if we can get our head around this idea of empathizing with one another, then we are going to be ten times more effective in our counseling than we could possibly be otherwise. Does it make sense? We push, uh, you know, the interesting thing is that I think a lot of times we do desire when people are in pain to give them the right answer or solution. And, and the thing that I think is amazing about this verse is that it doesn't tell us that when people are rejoicing or weeping that we should have some sort of admonition or response that is verbal. It doesn't. It doesn't demand that we have all the right answers. I mean, who knows? I mean, there's a lot of times, and I've, and I've experienced grief as loss. When I come into contact with people in ministry who are grieving because of some sort of loss or they have some sort of great sorrow, a lot of times I want to be able to provide them with an answer that's going to fix things quick. And that's not really, that's not really how life works. And, and, and we need to figure this out so we can be more effective at meeting people where, where they're at and drawing them in. And so here's our key point number five. Empathizing with people in both their joy and their heartache is crucial to revealing to others the true nature of Christ. Empathizing with people in both their joy and their heartache is crucial to revealing to other people the true nature of who Jesus Christ is. And as you would guess, that there's probably no greater example of these principles or these attitudes than Jesus himself, right? That's usually the case. And that Jesus models just about the entirety of Scripture is modeled for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Are you angry? <laughs> I told you that they were wrong. Okay, put that. So that, okay, good. Yeah. We'll sit here. You meditate and contemplate what you write. Okay, so get in, right? I don't know what to do, all right? Okay. Everybody with people, both their joy and their heartache, is crucial to revealing to others the true nature, the true nature. So let's look at let's look at the example. Can we do that? John chapter eleven, verse thirty-two. You guys know the story. You know, there's a dear friend of Jesus that uh, named Lazarus, and you know Jesus is doing ministry, he's doing busy, and Lazarus is sick, and they send for him, and uh, and Jesus uh, purposes not to go and help, and he uh, he he lets Lazarus die. Now, now, Jesus knows the beginning of the story and the end. 
He knows the outcome. He knows that he's going to go out there and raise this man from the dead. He knows. And yet, with that knowledge, we see him enter in, in a way, an empathy, enter into the emotions and the feelings around him in a way that, that really condemns him. And convinces him. So Jesus is headed to meet the, the grieving friends and family of Lazarus and, and look at how he's met in verse 32. Then when Mary, uh, Lazarus' sister, was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. You know, she doesn't understand, right? You know when lost people lose things when they grieve, when they're in sorrow? There's a lot that they don't understand, right? So notice that he doesn't respond with any words there. Look at how he responds. And Jesus therefore saw her weeping. And the Jews also weeping who came with her. He groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Within his inner man, he felt pain. He felt the same pain that they were feeling. That there was loss. That there was struggle. That there was sorrow. And he felt that with them. And then he says, where have you laid him? And he said unto him, Lord, come see. And Jesus wept. Knowing that he was going to raise this man from the dead, he entered into their pain and their suffering. Why? Why? But it's because it made the message all the more powerful to me. It made the message that he was about to deliver that much more powerful to their sight and to their ears. Because when they saw that he empathized with them, they knew that he was all man, and that his heart was big, and that he loved them, and desired them, and felt the pain that they felt, and they knew in that moment his love. And so when he goes to raise Lazarus from the dead, the message of the gospel is all the more powerful. He affirmed his love and then he acts by giving them a message about the resurrection and eternal life. The big, the big, the witness to say that proclaims the truth of the gospel in a way that's absolutely amazing. How many people can say that they saw someone raised from the dead? And so what he does here is he enters into where they're at and that gives him an open door to proclaim to them the truth of who he really is. And that's who we should be too. See, for, for Christians, um, we need to understand that our proper emotional response speaks volumes. And it opens the door for actions and words that affirm the life 
It comes with knowing Jesus. Are you, are you guys with me? So, so, it's super important for us to understand that if we can enter into and prove our love through empathy, then it will absolutely result in proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And don't you want to be like Jesus? Yeah? And this is who he was. And so, like, listen to me. I, I don't know, I, like, I don't know what to tell you. You don't have an excuse for not being able to eat. You know, God loves time. He, he does. There's, there's promises for us in Psalms 126 that those that, that sow in sorrow will reap in joy. There's an amazing passage in the Psalms that tells us that, that, that God actually has a metaphorical model where you can change the content of our crime. That he knows every tear that we've wept. Right? I mean, I'm pretty confident that Jesus has this, like, this swimming pool for me. Right? Where he keeps, he keeps and contains my tears. You know why? Because God is a God of empathy. That's what he sent Jesus to us. That he saw our pain and our sorrow and he, he knew that we needed an intercessor. And in his love sent Jesus Christ to be with us, all man and all God. He knew we needed him. He met us in our sorrow and in our pain. Now, we're going to finish out looking at one more attribute or, or attitude in ministry that we need to have. Okay? So sensitive and empathetic, but then also single-minded. Single-minded. Verse 16. Be of the same mind one toward another. Be of the same mind. This is super important in ministry. Why? Why is that so important? Being single-minded. In a world where we desire unity greatly, we've absolutely failed at being unified. Socially, politically, right? We just failed at it. As a society, we have absolutely no way of doing it. I mean, relativism is absolutely pervasive, and the end of relativism is not good. I mean, the world wants to believe that all of us can be so different, and yet we can come together in such a way that we're all on the same team. We can lock arms, and we can be in love, and we can sing Heal the World together, right? You guys know that song? The Michael Jackson song? You guys didn't know that Michael Jackson actually made lots of really bad music, by the way. There's a song called Feel the World. You should you should YouTube that later. I know I've been way to it, actually. <laughs> That's a shame. But uh yeah, so the world thinks that we're gonna come together uh with no common ground. That's just not how it works, guys. That's how it works. God has made a way for His believers, for His people to come together on a common ground. Even among believers, there's divisions because of a refusal to adhere to the literality of Scripture. 
Even people that call themselves Christians can't get along because there's no common ground. Because they can't agree on what the Bible says because so many of them are taking the literal words out of context in order to adapt them to their lives. But for Christians, for following Christ, for those of us who are determined, for Christians, God's Word is the common ground. It's the place where people of diverse backgrounds and experiences can come together. Look at this church. Look at this room. And the diversity of people, even just in this room. People from all over the world, all, all different types of backgrounds, all different types of upbringing, have the ability to come together in unity, of singleness, uh, in singleness of mind. Gathered around the doctrines and the character of God, we can begin to have the same mind. The same mind. And things that seem to divide us, uh, divide us no longer seem that important. So here's our key point. Key point that single-mindedness is the result of a shared ambition to obey Jesus. Singleness of mind is the result of a shared ambition to simply obey Christ and His Word. And if we can all agree to do that, then there will be nothing that keeps us from working together. You know, I had a conversation with some friends the other day um, that, uh, that, that come to church here. They just started coming to church here. And they were talking about how different um, everybody is. And like, like, spiritually, the different levels of walk. So uh, there's baby Christians and there's people that really fall along in their walk. Right? But there's people of different inclinations and backgrounds. And when you think about it, think about it, even if our pastoral staff or our leadership, how diverse we are and how different we are from one another. And yet we have the ability, when we come together, to be speaking and singing from the same exact script as though there is nothing different about us at all. If everything else becomes meaningless in light of the common ground. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 2 and 3 say, Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, that nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in loneliness of mind, that each esteem one other better than themselves. And this points us very importantly, that singleness of mind requires overlooking position. That so we can't be considering other people's positions and still be united. Okay, it says, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. That's the key, isn't it? Look at, look at Romans chapter 12, verse 16, the second part. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceit. You know what, guys? If the way that we see people in this church is the same way that people see one another in the world, then we're in big trouble in ministry life. Because all day long, I'm the high school. What all people do is judge one another based on how they look, act, walk, whatever. And they all they do is quit. Okay, as an art teacher, our kids hang out with the art teachers. 
And really, no one else is invited into that circle. And you see the same thing. There's just a million, you know, I think, like before I lived, it was just like, it was like the, the Grisha's associates. Some point, right? What happened to that, you know? Right? Like that, never? <laughs> like in the 50s or something, I don't know. But you know what? Now there's just so many divisions and so many, like what is, social media has just given us so many ways of being divided from one another. It's another thing to conform to. And we are, we're divided. And if we invite that way of thinking into the church, we are in big trouble, ministry wise. Big trouble. And when the word years, you know, we think the word time descends, we think about negativity. But that word is very important. It's very important. Essentially what it means is, lower yourself to the same level or lower than those that you engage with. You know what it means? Empathize with every kind of person, whether they be rich or poor, whether they be popular or unpopular, whether they be cool or not, whether they be attractive or not, Lower yourself that we might lift each other up in singleness of mind. Seeing our world through the lens of eternity causes us to prioritize just as Jesus Christ would. He's no respecter of persons. He doesn't see those things. And neither should we. So as we close out, and we look at all these character qualities, we talk about all these attitudes that ought to be true of us. There's some of you, listen, there's some of you who, have, who do not have access to these character qualities. There's no way that you can become these things. Because these character qualities are qualities that are divine. And they're bestowed. And the pathway of having this character begins with the cross. It begins with forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And some of you today, you, you don't know if you have the right perspective on love or good and evil, and you can't have these attributes because you have not yet sought forgiveness in Jesus Christ. He did enter into this world because He loved you. He came here because He saw you before time. And He saw that you needed Him. And he came. And he loved you. And he died a spirit of death. He took your place. He took your place. The creator of the world took your place on the cross and died. And now, now, if you want to be like Christ, you have to begin by meeting him on his terms. And his terms are the forgiveness of sins. And some of you need to make that decision today. Others of you, you recognize you struggle with empathizing with people. Maybe it's your own fear and your own insecurity that keeps you entering into and being there for people in their pain and their suffering or maybe even their rejoices. Others of us, we recognize we're not single-minded and we're not unified in terms of God's word. We need to work through that. And so as the worship team comes up and we close in worship, I ask that at whatever level you need to deal with these things or anything, that's convicting you, then please do that. We're going to have leaders up here that can pray with you. Um, there will be people in the row or 
where you're sitting, I want to be there for you, is grab someone in prayer. And as you leave today, grapple with these things. If you don't know Jesus Christ, today is the perfect day to move. Don't walk out of here not knowing where you're going to spend eternity. Okay? Want me to your life this morning? Good. Love you, man. I love you guys. Let's pray. And let's, let's get right with the Lord in whatever way. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for the time. I felt like it was a little bit, I don't know, maybe it was a little academic. I don't know. Uh, but God, I, I pray that we all understand what your heartbeat is. And as we know your character, we've said this before, God, as we begin to know you and obey you and your word, then we will begin to pattern our lives after Christ. And as we pattern our lives after Christ, God, we will gain all of the fields that you feel. We will just, we will become like you and there's something to conform to the image of Jesus Christ. I absolutely believe that. That's what your word tells us. And so, God, wherever our lack is, would you draw us into patterning our lives after your word? Would you make us more obedient to you? Would you give us a desire to be intimate with you and know you in a relationship that begins with reading your books daily? Will you help us with that? God, if there's anyone in you that needs to deal with their salvation, the issue of life after death, if there's anyone in here that needs to deal with issues of empathy and sensitivity towards others, if there's anyone in here who recognizes that they're divisive and they need to grow to be single-minded, well, please allow us, give us the grace to deal with those things this morning. We love you and we're thankful for the time that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.